Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Looks like Elixir 1.12.1 was already released. It's a small set of bug fixes. Looks like they maybe rolled back one or two changes to fix some discrepancies, but a small set of fixes, then we'll drop a link to the show notes if you're interested in checking that out. Hey, there's a new tree sitter Elixir parser out there. Uh, you might be asking yourself, what the heck is tree sitter? Tree sitter is an incremental parser for a lot of languages. And uh, I found the, the Elixir one. It looks like it's relatively new. Uh, I've been using it. It works really well. <laughs> So a tree sitter is, uh, it's, it's used in Atom, the editor Atom by the GitHub folks. Uh, NeoVim 0.5 is also going to be building in support. Uh, Emacs has support uh, by way of plugins, I believe. And I'm, and I'm sure that there's more plugins out there, um, that support tree sitter. One of the personally, I find most exciting aspects of tree sitter is that it's not regex based. Uh, it is actually smart here. Uh, in fact, it can even emulate some like LSP like kind of qualities. It knows the function scope, for example. So we've got some links in the, in the show notes, uh, but it's pretty exciting. Uh, Elixir has a tree sitter parser out there. Next up, I wrote a blog post that's posted out on the fly.io blog. This is about using Livebook as a tool for project documentation. This is something I was playing with, and I had a, a lot of fun doing this. And the idea is that you can take Livebook and connect it to your mix project locally. And then you're able to access all the code in your project. This is a great opportunity to use the markdown in Livebook to document the code and simultaneously be able to execute the code with code completion and everything be able to interact with the code too. I found it's a really fun way to say within my project source code, I'm going to drop in a notebook directory and have my live book notebooks live in there. And that can be part of the documentation. So as people come and onboard onto a new project, you say, hey, this is some of the most critical parts of this application. Here's how it works. This is the important aspects of it where they can actually play with it too. And it actually even works for running gen servers and things like that. So I had a lot of fun with that. You can check out that blog post and hopefully it'll give you some ideas as to ways you can use Livebook, even if you're not using machine learning or anything like that. There's a lot of value in Livebook and I'm excited to have it be part of the ecosystem. Hey, speaking of Livebook, Josie Valim is teasing something new coming to Livebook. <laughs> more teasing, more Livebook news. He shared a graphic that kind of looks like theater seats. And there's zero explanation, <laughs> so no idea what this is uh, referring to, but something to look forward to. We'll drop a link uh, to the tweet, so you maybe you can conjecture what's going on. Live audience. My guess will be like, yeah, like so Jackbox TV game style thing where people can join in the audience and still vote and say, yeah, I think that's a good code change. I think that's what it'll be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Like, I think I think Livebook is a direct competitor to Jackbox.tv. I think this is <laughs> yeah. uh, this is definitely us making some commercial some commercial success now. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing is Voitech Mock created a repo showing some examples of mix install. So if you recall, in 1.12, mix.install slash two function was available, making it Elixir a whole lot easier to use in scripting. And Wojtek was the one who did the work on that. So he put together a GitHub repo that shows a bunch of examples on different mix install usages. So it's something totally worth checking out, especially if you're looking for ideas of how you can use mix install and different ways you can apply it. There's some fun examples there. And if you think of some, hey, create a PR. Next up, we came across a tweet 
talking about a curl URL piped into SH style of scripting using Elixir. The tweet shows a small picture of a script and some sample usage. I don't have a use for this at the time, but we'd love to hear what uses you guys have. Let us know if you're if you're interested in using an approach like this. And just the the, the usual caution here, uh, piping anything into your bash is usually not a good idea, but <laughs> pretty <laughs> neat. But we do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Last up, uh, Stack Overflow. You may have heard of them. They have their usual survey. It's out and it includes uh, both Erlang and Elixir uh, in the survey. So you know how we feel about surveys, you know, take it or leave it, love them or hate them. But it is good for us as an Elixir community or Erlang community to go and participate in those uh, in those surveys, make sure that, uh, you know, that we show up, that we represent. Uh, so we'll drop some links to those to the survey. And if you have maybe five minutes, I think, go and go and take it. I don't know how long the survey will actually be open, so best best to get on it. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Alex Ukisas. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here, guys. So Alex, I'm interested in talking with you today because I became aware of something that you guys were doing at your job, where you're using channels and sockets and using those more directly. Because you know, a lot of times, like that's, that's the technology that LiveView is built on is using channels and sockets and using web sockets underneath it all. But sometimes, you know, we kind of forget maybe that there's an incredible technology under here that we can use not with live view to solve other problems. So I was excited to be able to talk with you and kind of see how you're using that and give people some ideas about how they might be able to use this technology and what kind of problems they could solve. But before we jump into all that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, so as you can maybe imagine from my difficult-to-pronounce last name, I'm from Greece, but for the past few years, I'm not going to see how many, because it's been a while, I've been living in this, what I think is the second best place after Greece, which is California. I uh, spent quite a bit of time in San Francisco, but now I'm in Los Angeles, which is even more awesome. I spent most of my career in engineering systems and not kind of app web world. Um, so I've done like streaming databases, data center networks and like SDNs and then storage and most of it in startups and or research. And here I am doing, you know, the quite opposite of what I've done so far, you know, consumer uh, mobile. So it's kind of fun. When you came to Elixir, what language were you coming from? Like, because a lot of those systems, I imagine they could be implemented in a lot of different languages. What are some of the things that you were more familiar with? Right. Um, so I spend most of my paid engineering work in C, C++ land. So the majority of my time as a developer, not only in research, was in my first job, which was a storage product, um, enterprise storage for backed by cloud. It was back in early 2010s. So a lot of device drivers, cross-platform, you know, uh, demons. So a lot of modern C++ and quite a bit of Java. So we did both ends. Um, so... I kind of skipped all the web dev, you know, Ruby and Rails versus blah, blah, who knows. Uh, these all are familiar to me by reading the orange sites, but not in practice. So how did you like coming to Elixir from those more close to the metal languages where now you're dealing at a higher level? How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, it kind of was not really imposed on me, but it was, I joined my immediate previous startup as a later co-founder and we just started moving the MVP from Python to Phoenix. 
as a web app mostly, you know, as a, it was a fintech application akin to, let's say, if you're used to like Wealthfront or Betterment. So not really high performance or scalability, but correctness was a big deal. So that's one of the reasons that the guys chose to use it. They also built a very successful startup in Erlang uh, with very minimal resources that they had sold to Splunk very successfully. So it's like they would, you know, they would hang out with Joe and um, Erlang factory events in London and stuff like that. So I got into that. It was not an instant falling in love moment. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Uh, I was saying, where is my object and where kind of mutated? And this doesn't make sense. I had traumatic experience uh, with functional from undergrads because prologue. I mean, come on. Uh, and so not at, you know, at second year of college. But like all big loves, it starts rough and then it grows super strong. So now there's zero chance I'll use something else for something that's like a bigger project that's not like a quick and dirty prototype. So I'm interested in, in having you kind of share where you've been going more recently and some of the things that you've done with Elixir and Phoenix and doing more real-time and live stream stuff. So maybe you can kind of tell us what it is you're doing, like what kind of problem it is solving. All right. Um, so what I didn't cover in the intro is that I'm now a staff software engineer and whatnot, uh, which is a live stream platform and marketplace that allows collectors and enthusiasts to connect with their community and buy and sell products on the platform. So think things like uh, Pokemon cards or um, NFL cards and uh, Funko Pop, other like designer toys. The main way that people interact and we, with the product is what we call like live shows. Think of it as a, if eBay and Twitch and perhaps QVC had a baby. Um, <laughs> so you schedule a show as a host. Uh, first of all, you get verified and we're very strict about you know, verifying hosts. So we make it so we keep it a safe environment and those scammers or things like that. So once you get verified, you start a live stream from your phone. Most likely you'll auction off. You have the, you know, you have the option to set a set price, like buy it now in eBay terminology. It's more fun and people make you also more money as a seller. You'll put a, an item uh, for auction. So it's in the foreground and it's short term, uh, meaning like two to three minutes. And people do like real-time bidding on the product while they also chat uh, in the app. And the host has like one-way audio to the audience. Uh, and then they'll, the audience will ask them, hey, can you turn this around? Can you see this angle? Can you see the, the box? So we're using Elixir to power both the chat, which is new, not a big deal. It's you know, the to-do list app that you build in Elixir. But also, you know, the thing that's the most crucial for our business, which is the live bidding in any of the shows. I can imagine, you know, if you're partnering with like a, some kind of social media influencer, that live stream, you could have like a large influx of people kind of all at once wanting to make bids and ask questions and things like that. Is that the kind of thing you're seeing? Exactly. So we have now been like testing the waters and with the with these live shows. So it came out almost as, a, as an experiment. That was not the original idea of whatnot. I mean, it was adjacent, but it was more static. Um, and that's how it blew up. And that's the, by far the, our biggest source of revenue for us and the hosts. And it's funny you should say it because now in May, we've had quite a few of these people that have follower following elsewhere you know, on YouTube, on Twitch, on Instagram. 
And at the end of the month, we have our first kind of big event. We haven't shared it yet. So uh, just download the app. It'll be this, this Sunday, whatever <laughs> this show's end. Uh, by the time this airs, it's probably would have happened. Yeah, so this is kind of the problems we're trying to solve. You know, a lot of people coming in at once, doing a lot of actions at once that need to be near real time and accurate, right? Because it involves people's money. Well, that's cool. So maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit about the tech stack. Is the mobile app written in because, you know, there's web sockets or channels for these connections. So kind of walk us through what that looks like. As I said, most of it is uh, a mobile app, although we do have a static marketplace on the web, but it's neglected, uh, to say the <laughs> least, but it will come back with Avengers. But right now, most of our users use the mobile app. It's uh, written in uh, currently in React Native on both uh, targets both Android and iOS. And in it, we're using the official you know, JavaScript socket JS from Phoenix. And we're currently in the process of like doing a rewrite in native uh, Swift and Kotlin just for, you know, we, we love JavaScript and React Native has taken us really far. I think for specifically our use case, uh, we're reaching the limits with like live stream and like animation and that kind of interactivity that's approaching game level functionality. Uh, so that's that. And the backend is a mix of, of obviously Elixir. So Elixir powers our chat and live experience over uh, explicitly like WebSocket events. And the rest of the functionality comes over uh, GraphQL, which we expose through like a, like a big Python monolith, including things like, you know, all the integrations and with, you know, let's say, as you can imagine, payment processors and Shippo, which does our you know, um, shipping labels and all this stuff. But as far as Phoenix and Elixir is concerned, everything is server-driven. The app is written so it's super light and it has very little logic in terms of business logic. It's all about presentation. And just socket event, like channel events rather, uh, dictate what's happening. So you place a bid, people receive you know, the updated product information with the, who's the highest bidder and how much do they bid and what's the next bid and what's the countdown timer and things like that. So have you guys used any part of Phoenix presence for keeping track of how many people you have or? Absolutely. Yeah. So we use it for, for chat. So we have the active viewer scout, like any other live uh, experience. So a little eye with a counter. We're still now trying to figure out as we're scaling how, because it's a little bit chatty in, their, in its payload. We're not a Discord use case that we want to see, at least for now, who's online, who's offline with the list of users. We just care about the reduction of like how many are there as like a signal of like, oh, the stream is popular and this is not. Because you can imagine uh, as you load the, uh, the app and you haven't joined a stream, you can scroll and see which streams are happening. And the, you know, you want to see, oh, this one has a 522 and the other one has like 20. So maybe I'll go to the quiet one or not. Who knows? Um, so we're using presence quite heavily uh, as well, you know, uh, and we love how, as I was re-implementing, so the in- initial MVP was done kind of you know, very quickly and it worked fantastically for its purpose in serverless, AWS serverless architectures with like Lambda and API gateway with, again, with WebSockets. And as uh, we're moving into you know, the new implementation, it felt like cheating, honestly, how quickly... I was able to, you know, have par- feature parity what was there, while you know cutting down latency by you know 
I mean, users were like elated, let's put it that way. Like how the hell did chat and bids got so faster, so much faster. Um, but, you know, I just, a couple lines of code, we had presence, a couple lines of code, we had, you know, chats and broadcasts and everything. Getting to the, you know, parity was great, uh, very, very quick. Well, I'll, gi- I'll give you a little tip about presence because... Mark's over here, like chuckling to himself, because I like my company's actually been going through kind of the same thing that you were talking about, and we kind of discovered that Phoenix presence is is way too chatty. We were getting into the hundred thousand number of concurrent on one topic, and so we actually had to move off of presence because we really only wanted the count as well. But along with that comes, you know, the presence diff update every time a thousand people join, a thousand people leave. You have this massive diff that's being broadcast to every single socket. And so a couple of things, you know, if you're, if you're having this problem too, is you can actually override the the broadcast so that you're not broadcasting that diff so much. And then one thing that we did is we just moved away from presence and we just kind of, we only want to keep the count. So we kind of made our own light version of presence. And then instead of broadcasting the whole entire diff, we just broadcast, here's what the new count is, which is, just our network in and out, not in, but our network out was just reduced drastically. Yep. Now, this is roughly what we're thinking, you know, especially since a lot of our data is driven through GraphQL. So to give you an idea, the previous uh, MVP was, you know, recording joints and leaves. In this case, we're able to get the, the leaves. And so you're probably aware how, you know, you're not guaranteed to have terminate called on the channel. So the leave, it's kind of like, yeah, that person is still around or not? So we were populating, you know, DynamoDB field, which obviously doesn't scale to do this many writes on this field. So we're in the same, we're solving it before it really happens, but we've seen how chat it is. For me, it's, it's interesting just that we've seen this a number of times in different places where you're getting this very bursty kind of traffic, where you're getting like these people all come together at once for maybe an event like an auction or uh, a release of some kind and then then they all go away but that you're having like these big flood of users and you have to be able to handle that scale but but not all the time you don't have to be at that level all the time so it's just it's an interesting new problem i'm excited because i've been following what kate has been doing at his work and we're gonna i'm looking forward to a time where we can sit down with him and he can give us a little bit more of a detailed breakdown of what kind of process they went through to to get there and where they ended up. Because uh, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think as people encounter this problem more often. So Alex, another thing I saw recently, you know, Elixir 1.12 was released. And one of the things I noticed in the change log that kind of makes me think of, oh, I wonder if this would be beneficial for what you guys are doing, was this idea of a new feature that landed in registry. And it was specifically... <laughs> so if we check out the, the change log, you know, it says that the registry module supports the compressed option, which is useful for GraphQL applications managing hundreds of thousands of subscriptions via Absinthe. And I thought, that sounds like Alex's problem. <laughs> so that's quite interesting. Uh, not sure, and I still haven't... It's in my backlog to see the what came out uh, in the change log because we definitely follow, and we're trying to keep up to date with both OTP and Elixir. In Phoenix, uh, and there's some, also something in Phoenix 1.6, whenever it's released, that is very relevant to us. I'll, cat, I'll talk about this later, but it's not really something that we're using right now. So as A, unfortunately, we're not yet exposing our graph through Absinthe. 
and which is something I'm kind of whenever we'll find some time to MVP this won't be interesting, especially since we can get subscription over WebSockets is already we have the transport open. Mm-hmm. Um, so going through to a push then pull model. The registry is interesting because we do use registry, but we're using hordes, distributed registry. Yeah. So we deploy in clustered Erlang uh, setup in Kubernetes. And the way currently we run our auctions, so one auction, so let's put the nomenclature in place. So one auction is one product in one live stream. So in one live stream, there's multiple auctions. So the current way we're doing this, it's TBD how this will scale, is one gen server that is transient. And the host starts the auction. I believe in people will correct me if I'm wrong, that it will start on the node where the host's channel process lives. And it, it starts in a node, doesn't matter. Uh, but every other participant in this uh, live stream may live in one of the other nodes in the cluster, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to be able to find the pit of that gen server. So we're using Ford's dynamic registry. So people who don't know, it's a CRDT-backed distributed registry, as the name says, that you can name most typically with like a via tuple. It has a eventual consistency. So both as the process comes up, and in our case, because they're transient, as the process dies. So we've had this, you know, red herring, you know, sentry bugs, a crash and gen server crash because we couldn't find the PID because we kill the process when the auction ends or before it starts. So um, I'm not sure how it will impact. So I know Horde, and I actually talked with the maintainer, Derek. Uh, he's somewhere in like Asia time zone. So whenever I catch him, they've tried hard to have API compatibility with registry from Elixir. Uh, so I don't know how this will impact Horde, which will be interesting. Yeah, that is interesting because I've been using Horde uh, with a kind of proof of concept where I wrote uh, a game that could run on the fly.io, which was across multiple regions. And one of the things I found like with Horde is by default, it does a equally distributed location for a, a kind of assigning where the server is going to live, for that gen server. I could have someone join in America and it would by default put it over into France because that's where my other node is. And it's like, that's not what I want. But what's really cool about Horde and I do like about it is you have the ability to create, you can create custom strategies. So that's one of the things I'll be playing with is just, you know, creating a custom strategy for doing that. But, but when you're dealing with Kubernetes and they're all geolocated in the same place, it's not as important if it ends up on one node versus another node. So that's cool. For sure. Yeah. And I just want to throw out there, there's a, in the, in the show notes, we'll have a link to Horde and inside the readme, there's a video of a guy doing a tank game and he has, you know, like two nodes and he takes one down. He, he does a rolling update, you know, and one of the nodes goes down and all the game state moves to the surviving node. And then the new version comes up and all the game state moves to that node. And then the second node comes up and the, they're playing the tank game this whole time while he rolls out a V2 of the app. It's fascinating demo. I, yes. I remember that. Yeah, that was uh, Daniel Zuma, I think. Great talk. Yep. Yeah, I think Horde is, is a great technology. I love it. And while we're on the topic, because it will save some people time, again, when time comes, so we're launching a tech blog, then a lot of it will be around Elixir, but not only. But anyway, definitely we're going to write about this because we got bitten and the wrong way by this with Horde. And I think it's both that and Lip Cluster. So as we're trying to scale the number of replica, replicas too rapidly, no, it was only Horde. Yeah, it was only Horde. 
and let's say you're running with four replicas and you go into 20, as it's trying to do chatter between the nodes to find out membership with each other, it, it will time out and then those nodes will come down and it will try to start up again. It will even worsen the problem. So you're in this like spiral loop of death, um, <laughs> which you can mitigate. So Kubernetes has like all things, you can do pretty much everything uh, you want. You can tell it to scale it like in a specific step. Let's say go to two to 20 with a step of two and then wait. Um, <laughs> so if people doing that, it will bite you. It, yeah, it's hard to get around that. So Alex, I've got to ask, you know, when you're thinking about doing like a, a real-time auction, I just got to ask, you know, did you guys think about live view and thinking, you know, this could be an option for it, but you end up choosing not to do that, obviously. But I'd be curious to hear about your feelings and kind of thought process about where you ended up going and why. I'm not sure how live view, if I understand correctly, and I think I get 50% of how it works. It's web first, right? Or only. Uh, and we were mobile only in this case. So I did know the technology had followed quite a bit, you know, the, all the, you know, the Twitter clone demo, all that stuff. Um, and one of that, that was one of the reasons why I said, hey, this looks great, but we need the underlying technology because the things that comes out of the box for free doesn't apply to us right now, at least on the mobile. And that's why I kind of like tried to peel the onion. It was definitely not stuff I've done before. It was not in my familiar, uh, let's say, arsenal. Like everything, you know, going to fundamentals, it made sense. And together with all our, my, my thought process of, you know, choosing the right technology to build this from moving it from the MVP to what will be production, you know, something, you know, the requirements are pretty specific, you know, near real time, fault tolerant and scalable and all that stuff. Most often than not is something on the beam. <laughs> but that makes sense with the heavy mobile focus that you'd want to go more native. That makes sense. How has the experience been for you guys as a team working with this, working with channels and sockets? You know, has it been hard to work with? Has it been, you know, a pleasure? Like, and as the team has been learning it, what has that been like? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that uh, because today, even like in a couple hours, I'm doing an internal tech talk uh, about how we're using Elixir and how can more people, it's my secret project to have more people working on on me with me on this but um but for the you know if it makes sense you know beyond the, the you know we, we're trying to be you know responsible technologists and like choose the right tools for the right job so as of very recently i was the only person on the team which is you know the worst case you know getting alex gets hit by bus scenario more recently i hired someone else on, on that's working with me that's has been elixir familiar for quite a while and then have another person joining us later in the summer, but uh, it's been interesting. So definitely people have seen the outsides, the product of it being, you know, things working well and they scale and they don't, they don't crash or at least the places that we covered in unit tests, at least. Um, <laughs> on the flip side, there has been, and again, we're a small team and we're moving incredibly fast. So, you know, us being keeping up to date with, you know, documentation and how things work and how to debug something if I'm, you know, away that day had not been great because again, priorities. So on that, I guess it's up to us and, you know, me specifically that, you know, I introduced this technology to, to our team to do a better job to internally communicate on how it works and educate people that, you know, 
they have not come from anything in that space, you know, very senior engineers, but not in this you know, technology, but the, everybody that I've talked with, they picked it up quite quickly because of course, fundamentals. The other side that we've been struggling, and I think we're not alone here, is the lack of support from libraries and tools uh, because it's a more niche technology. So um, you want to adopt a third-party like a SaaS tool. Commonly, it will not have an official library. It will be something that's from the community. And usually, it's pretty good. But the support you get from also from tools. So we have been using New Relic by default for you know APM and tracing its support for Beam compared to what it did out of the box for let's say Apollo Server night and day, right? Mm-hmm. So we, it's been a little bit of a struggle trying to find, and I'm sure there are tools, you know, we're, so we're evaluating, for example, in this space now, you know, APM and, you know, observability tools across the, you know, all the household names you probably know, like Datadog and your, and uh, Honeycomb and Lightstep. Um, there's something for Erlang Solutions, which I'm interesting, like, uh, I'm sure you guys know Francesco. Francesco told me that they built in-house the Wombat, which he praised quite a bit. Uh, I'm trying. So we're trying those t- stuff, but it still looks, and we saw this in our previous company as well, for some of the crucial integrations. So we end up going with like some Python microservice because it existed and it worked. And was, you could find support on Stack Overflow and whatever. So we have ways to go there, I think. So you mentioned some microservices. One of the things that I found pretty challenging for like onboarding new developers onto a project is especially for microservice architectures is <laughs> getting everything running. You know, it's it's like the most important part of your app, I reckon, would be, you know, the the auctioning process, like putting in bids and like the the, the payout part. If that whole process requires like four different apps to be running and communicating with each other and and to do that locally requires a lot of coordination of, of services so like i've seen docker used a lot to help with that docker compose um if if like it's a kubernetes kind of thing maybe maybe the the and if you're on kubernetes you probably have a devops team maybe the devops team is given some scripts you know to to run that stuff locally with like minikube or, or whatever but oh i've even more often i just see like just the readme saying go clone this go clone that make these make these values the same in your local environment get them to connect hopefully it works cross your fingers contact this person if uh, things don't work out (laughs) (laughs) how has whatnot how has how have you you know uh, approached uh, those kind of projects uh, those kind of issues yeah it's definitely not a new problem for us Uh, we still don't have really microservices and i think honestly we should be far from having a lot of them being small enough for now. Specifically, the, the part that I'm working on, I built it so that A, it's in the, mostly independent from other services. So you can spin up, you know, again, uh, if you have um, stuff running locally in your thing, you can spin it up or Docker and Compose is the same. Uh, and you just have one terminal running and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest, we're still struggling, right? Uh, not struggling, but you just have to have a lot of tabs open. Um, so either you do on Kubernetes, you can, let's say you're working on one piece and you don't, everything else stays the same, which is a good strategy to not change everything at once. Um, so you do port forward and if things work, okay. But 
we've been discussing like how do we do you know how do i work on, a, on an airplane right the other way i've been a suggesting for folks to work and it's aligns with what i just also said like how working one thing at a time just focus on you know if you're doing microservices right or you know medium services let's put it that way they should do one thing very well and that should be unit easily to just unit test and just isolate everything else if it has like a ton of other what i call like octopus dependencies everywhere Maybe it's time to sit back and think if you're doing everything right, at least for your level of complexity and level of the team. Yeah. So that's kind of my approach and that's how I, I designed our Elixir app. So it just, it stands by its own. It does one, not one, it does, it, it runs our live streams really well. We can change everything else. We can run on another cloud and another, it doesn't matter. It will still work. The unit test will still pass. It will be correct. Uh, the deployment scripts for Kubernetes will still be self-contained. It will move to Kotlin. It will still be the same. Hopefully this covers your answer, but yeah, that's, that's where we are. I think everybody's battling this. So Alex, do you have any, any interesting stories you can share with us as you guys have been going live with your channel project we've been talking about, Phoenix Channels? You know, as you learn deeper into the language and the beam, you see how, you know, how data structures are set up and how things are implemented under the covers. We discovered there's no what is in other languages like a max int, for example, you get in C, right? So in our case, our, a bit is in sense because if you handle money, you know to do things in sense. So we had in a couple of auctions, someone trying to be a jokester and bids, you know, up like a megazillion dollars for an item, like, you know, overflowing the, the UI. And somehow down the line, we still haven't done the RCA about what actually breaks the, the live stream. It breaks the live stream because we accept it. Because <laughs> right now our handle in callback has just guards, which is sad. Uh, well, we've since moved to you know doing proper uh, parameter checking using uh, ectoschemulus, which is great. But this broke everything because apparently it will be as big as you have memory. It will allocate an integer for you. So yeah, check. Put limits. Like every, <laughs> I got bitten by the oldest, you know, uh, tip: don't trust user input. Oh yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> you pretty much any any form that I make, even and it, and it feels tedious sometimes if it's like one field, like oh, I got to make an ecto form, you know, like I definitely go through casting. I definitely put some some validations on there, uh, and at the very least, like a, a, a size check. So it's a lot of text, you know, right? So I make sure that the, the, the text size isn't more than like 500 kilobytes because that, I mean, even 500 kilobytes would be a lot of text, but it's a sanity check um, to make sure that they don't try to dump in something that's unreasonable just to see what would happen and laugh at me with their little black hats, black hats on. <laughs> Sorry, 1 billion is the maximum amount we will accept. Like, <laughs> I know you wanted to vote. I know you wanted to bid 10 billion. That could be a, a cool spot for an Easter egg, you know. <laughs> if it's over, if it's over a, a billion dollars, uh, you know, a little flash message is like, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. <laughs> got some deep pockets to you. I grew up playing Doom, right? In my previous company, we had, our in, so it was invite only. The invite only, the invite code was IDDQD. For those who know, you know, this is the god mode for Doom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's bringing back memories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
All right. So, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned something earlier. I kind of want to revisit because I do think it's important, right? We, I think as the Elixir community, we favor documentation. We, we, that's a first class citizen. We, we, we do that pretty well, I think. Uh, and that's because the tools really encourage us to do it. And the, and the docs are usually right by the code, which is where we are working. Right. And that's great and all, but it doesn't help doesn't mean as much if the library that you're using is like an adapter for some service you you mentioned you know new relic before and datadog and stuff like that i found it pretty amazing for some companies um to have an official client for elixir especially on early days like a like app signal for example for example like i chose app signal because uh, they had a you know a, a client for me to use in my projects and it integrated pretty well Comparing that client to like the same client for other languages or frameworks, you know, you maybe we were missing some features, but at least it worked. Uh, and we knew that it was going to improve from there on out. So all that to say is like there's a lot of companies out there, a lot of services out there that could benefit from having one of those official libraries. I, I always cry a little bit when the good tool, let's say Honeycomb or whatever, you know, uh, which may not be true for them. I don't actually know, but you go to their documentation site and they usually have a little drop down of like the languages that they support or the SDKs that they have out there. And they, they have Python in there and they have Ruby in there and they have bash, right? You can even do like curl or something and then no elixir. <laughs> always, always cry a little bit and wonder what would it take for that company to at least sponsor, you know, a, a communicate, a community uh, adapter for, for their service. Do you have any ideas like what what do we think would work for getting some of these companies to put out a little something for for Elixir there? Maybe it's just sponsoring an existing project or putting out their own. What do you what do you think could help cover that gap? I am by no means an expert how, you know, open source works and how to scale, make business decisions. And these guys, of course, they have a business to run. um, So they choose wisely. It's probably a good avenue for companies to adopt. So probably with not a big cost. And especially if you're, you know, a well funded and a well, you know, company with healthy revenues, money is really not a big issue, right? It will cost you maybe a sponsorship less than a hiring a pretty good developer internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that person that you hire, you know, more people benefit, you get some or a lot of exposure in the community, like a, as a goodwill. Mm-hmm. People are like, you know, people who are already used, like writing those libraries, they're passionate about them. They'll do like their best job. You're hiring yeah. the best person to do this job for you, not some person. So to give you an idea, we're just recently started being sponsors for a library that we're using. And that helps us quite a bit uh, with my friend, Alex, another Greek, Alex, which my wife is certain now that most than half the Greek males are called Alex. Uh, she's not... <laughs> So he's mm-hmm. written uh, Promix, which exposes... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So Alex and I, we, you know, we chat quite a bit. Uh, he's, he's a good guy. So we sponsor Promix, right? Well, it's him, because uh, we're heavy users of that. And you know, we rely on Grafana and Prometheus to give us metrics about everything, including our Elixir application. Um, so I think that's, that's maybe a healthy way to go. And yeah. I would and, encourage more companies to just, you know, if you use it, sponsor it. Don't yeah. be cheap. Don't be cheap. <laughs> Don't be cheap. And then if, if the library doesn't exist, you know, then, then maybe sponsoring a hackathon to make it would be pretty cool. Uh, and then from there on out. 
sponsor the project or the developer that uh, that takes care of that uh, with you. You know, well, cool. I think we're you know just about a time. But before we close, is there is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? I'll let you have the last word. Oh, absolutely. And I would do a disservice if I didn't mention this. So we are definitely hiring a lot of people. Not a lot. We're hiring like really good people. Coincidentally, today we announced our Series B. So we have. Uh, which is wild. It came like three months after our Series A early in the year. Uh, so we're growing quite heavily. Uh, and we want not just Elixir people. I mean, Elixir familiar folks are great, uh, but we're hiring general, generalists remote first. Although if you want to be in LA, we have an awesome office, uh, <laughs> uh, which where I am now. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, you know, I think we're dealing with like super cool problems at scale and at speed of feature development that I, I definitely haven't seen. Uh, so if that's kind of your jam, or if you like Pokemon or stuff like that, or both, <laughs> uh, it's, um, drop me nice. a note. We'll chat. Got that, that, that scrappy startup feel still, huh? Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, th- thanks, Alex, for joining us. Uh, and we hope that you, dear listener, enjoyed this uh, with us. We had a great time. Uh, hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.